Hello and welcome to More Than Politics, a podcast for those of us who want something more than what we've come to expect from politics and from our political discourse. My name is Julie Varner Walsh. I'm your host. On today's episode, I'm talking with Meg Hunter Kilmer on a topic that is more explicitly Catholic than the others I've covered, but which will, I think, also have something to offer listeners of different faiths, or no faith at all. In this conversation, Meg will be telling us about saints who lived in politically troubled times. Given the divisiveness of the 2020 presidential election and how existentially threatening both sides seem to consider it, I wanted to take something of a longer view. The sad fact is, people have long lived under unjust political systems, systems that are as bad as, if not worse than, our current fears. I thought it would be helpful to hear stories of people who lived through such times, who faced them with courage and conviction, who took them as opportunities to grow in faith, to work toward justice, to do God's will, and to draw others closer to Him. In a conversation that was far funnier than I expected, and which spanned four continents and several centuries, Meg speaks to us about what these holy men and women have to teach us about living through turmoil, about facing oppression, about resisting unjust systems, about speaking truth to power. She reminds us that there are different roles for each of us in fighting the injustices of the world, and she encourages us to think outside the box, to consider things we never thought possible in discerning the roles that are right for us. Meg and her stories encourage us, too, to prepare for extraordinary circumstances by living our ordinary lives well. It's in that consent to ordinary holiness, Meg says, that the Lord is able to move and to do really remarkable things. I hope you'll find these stories interesting and inspiring, whether or not you share the Catholic faith. Meg Hunter-Kilmer considers herself a hobo missionary. After two theology degrees from Notre Dame and five years as a high school religion teacher, Meg quit her job in 2012 to live out of her car and preach the gospel to anyone who would listen. Fifty states and 25 countries later, this seems to have been a less ridiculous decision than she initially thought. Meg blogs at Pierced Hands and Alatea, and is a prolific poster on Instagram and Facebook especially about the saints. Our conversation was recorded on October 30th. All right. Hello, Meg. Hi, Julie. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am so excited to be chatting with you tonight. It's good good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. I was hoping you could introduce yourself for the audience. Sure. So my name is Meg Hunter-Kilmer, and I am a hobo missionary. What that means is that I live out of my car um, and I drive around the country and fly around the world and tell people how desperately God loves them. So I grew up outside D.C., got a couple of degrees in theology from Notre Dame, and then I taught high school religion, a little bit of middle school in Georgia and then in Kansas. But I have been living out of my car since 2012. So that is eight and a half years, homeless and unemployed, surviving on the generosity of total strangers from the Internet. And you actually spoke here at my house once. I did. You have such a beautiful house. (laughs) I was hosting a a little conference for Catholic women bloggers in the Mid-Atlantic, and Meg came and gave our opening talk of the day. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you. Um, I wanted to just introduce the topic for today. So a couple of weeks ago, my husband and I were watching A Man for All Seasons, which is the pretty famous classic movie about St. Thomas More. And I don't know why I had never seen it before. It's just something I had never gotten to. But we finally watched it. And, you know, the movie goes through his experience with King Henry VIII. King Henry VIII wanted to get a divorce and the Pope wouldn't grant the divorce. And so that's when he sort of split off from the Catholic Church and formed the Church of England. And um, you know, drama, drama, drama. And um, St. Thomas More resisted this move and um, would not give his um, statement of approval of the situation. And so 
I guess it was seen as a betrayal by the king, and ultimately he was executed. And there's much more to it than that. But the the movie goes through that situation. And I had this overwhelming feeling of sadness as I watched it, but also kind of of comfort. It was sort of a strange feeling. I just had this feeling of like, oh my, it has always been this way. It has always been this way about um, political difficulty and um, persecution and oppression. And I don't mean, obviously, that we are living in anything like an identical situation now, but this kind of phenomenon has just always been with us. You know, there have always been difficulty between political systems and the people who live under, under them. And in some periods of history and in current times and in many places in the world, we've gone through really difficult political situations in which people are persecuted, uh, people are treated unjustly, people struggle against the injustice, and people suffer for it. And so I just had this great feeling of sadness, like, oh, it's always been this way. It's always going to be this way. But I also had this feeling of comfort because even though it's always been this way, you've always had people to resisting and sticking to their guns and following their conscience and doing what they think is right. And that provides me with great inspiration and comfort. And I thought it would be wonderful to hear about some saints who lived in politically difficult times and who who through their their lives and their reaction to these situations showed us how to persevere and how to stand up for right, what's right. And, and they also show us how to bring ourselves closer to God. So I thought you would be the perfect person to talk about this because you have an amazing body of work when it comes to the saints. Um, for those who don't follow Meg yet, you should. She is, I think, one of the few must-follows in the Catholic online world. And you post constantly about different saints, and not just saints that like most of us have heard of, but people from all over the world in all different time periods. And um, I was hoping you could talk to us about the situation. Yeah. You know, it's funny, Julie, when you messaged me and you were like, okay, you know, I'd, I'd seen that you were starting this podcast and I respect where you're coming from politically. And so I, I had been thinking like, oh, I should listen to Julie's podcast. And you're like, do you want to come on the podcast and talk about saints who became holy in like political situations? And I wrote back and I was like, yes, but I should tell you, I really, really <laughs> hate politics, like really hate politics. Um, and your response was so perfect, just explaining that what you meant by saints who who became saints in the context of political difficulties wasn't necessarily the people who signed up to be politicians. Like, and we do have some of those for sure. Um, but it's an awareness of the fact that, you know, politics is something that affects all of us and that we all participate in, even, you know, maybe you've never voted in your life, you're still part of this political world, right? And so when we say politics, we don't mean uh, just the act of running for office. Or for me, what's really difficult is that I just never feel like I know enough about all of the particulars of policies to be able to have a really educated position or I'll like do all of this research and I'll come to a decision. And then a month later, people will be like, okay, so explain that to me. And I'm like, I can't anymore. I know that it made sense when I picked it because I'm just, that's not how my brain works. Like I will retain every element of every story of every saint I have ever cared about until the day that I die, God willing. But like, ask me about the nine articles that I read about systemic racism on Thursday. And I'm like, ah, it's bad. And I'm anti it, you know, like it's just, um, but I think that it's okay to recognize that people are going to, they're going to fight these fights differently and their experience of fighting injustice is going to be different depending on their particular gifts and their particular mm -hmm, inclinations. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, it's really consoling to me to know that like, I don't, I don't have to be a politician 
to be working for justice. I don't have to know all of the ins and outs of these particular policies to be able to say like, okay, I am opposed to racism. Like I am anti that. And what should that look like in terms of like school and housing particulars? I don't know, but I know that I can tell stories of saints who experienced racism and who were able to find holiness in spite of these assaults on behalf of the church. You know, like I have to know that it's okay for me to fight according to my abilities. I don't, I don't have to feel like I'm doing something wrong because I can't fight all of the battles. No. I mean, I think fighting according to your abilities is exactly what we're supposed to be doing. You know, we are, we are not all the same. We bring different strengths to the table and we ought to use the strengths we have. Exactly. Um, So I have been learning um, just the last couple of days. So my most recent uh, post that I wrote about saints, because this year I'm doing um, a year of sort of like quick takes on saints. And so this most recent one was saints with limb differences, um, because I think that representation is incredibly important. And um, I think a lot of times with disabled saints, we picture that we depict them in bodies that don't have disabilities because we're like, oh, the glorified body. And you're like, okay, but what does that do to people who are disabled and who want to see what homeless looks like in their particulars. So I'm, I was just looking at different people who were born with limb differences or who had um, amputations. And I discovered blessed Rupert Mayer. Do you know blessed Rupert Mayer? I do not. I am ready to be obsessed with this man. Um, (laughs) I think it started tonight and I'm already like, okay, I'm going to write a whole article about him. I'm going to write about him on Instagram. So here's this guy. He is born in 19th century Germany and he became a diocesan priest and then like immediately after became a Jesuit. And he was actually a really good violinist when he was young, but the Jesuits at the time, you didn't really get to have hobbies. And so he like let go of his love of the violin um, and he starts working as a parish priest and he goes to Munich and he's working with migrant workers in the early 20th century. And he's helping them find jobs and he's helping them get food and he's helping them find housing, which is, I mean, that's a very political thing to be doing, but it's also like just the works of mercy. Right. Yeah. Um, And I think that that's, that's the thing that you run into a lot as, as a Catholic, as a Christian, as a person of conscience, right? That you are going to feel like I need to serve these people and it becomes a political statement, right? Like mm-hmm. when I when I talk about uh, the beauty of unborn children, right? That becomes a political statement. When I talk about the beauty of black people, that becomes a political statement. And I'm like, that wasn't what I was trying to do, <laughs> but okay. Yeah. Like here we are. I'm just trying uh, to love people. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But loving people is political, especially in our system where We've like these parties have sort of picked which people they're going to love and which people they're going to throw under the bus. And so when you pick, when you choose to love somebody, it you it looks like you're aligning yourself with a political party when you're like, I'm just trying to be a human being. Speaking of political parties, actually, Meg, I should have mentioned at the beginning, we are recording this on Friday, October 30th. So we do not yet know who won the election. <laughs> No, and I don't ever want to know. <laughs> so so if at any point in this conversation, you think that we are weighing in on whoever the new president will be, we're not because we don't know who he is. <laughs> no, maybe it'll be a surprise. Maybe it'll be like, like a dark horse out of nowhere. <laughs> you know, like that could still happen. Maybe we don't even know the guy's name yet. Maybe it <laughs> Julie, this could be great. Um. <laughs> always an optimist, right? Right. <laughs> okay, so so Rupert Mayer, Father Father Mayer is working with um with these migrant workers and then World War 1 begins and he goes to become a chaplain in the German army in World War 1. So like by from an American framework, he's one of the bad guys, right? But he's a chaplain, he's a non-combatant and he is one of those chaplains who's like crawling along the front lines, like anointing soldiers who are dying and like wow. being shelled the whole way. And he gets hit by a grenade and he has to have his leg amputated. Uh, and so, you know, he's out of the chaplaincy and he's back in Munich and he's doing this work and he like really wanted to be able to provide mass for people who are traveling. So he started masses in the train station and he would celebrate the 3 a.m. mass. Wow. 
on a Sunday morning because apparently he's just amazing. Um, and he's working with the migrant workers and then um, the Nazis start coming to power and this guy was like, hell no. Like, hell no. And so he starts speaking out against the Nazis in 1923. Wow. That's like so early. So, so he had foresight, real foresight. Oh, yeah. He was invited to address a Nazi assembly. Uh, and the theme was, can a Catholic be a national socialist? And so he accepted the invitation and he stood up on this stage and the crowd starts applauding him. And he just said, I am afraid, gentlemen, that your applause has come too soon. For my answer to your question can only be a negative one. No, a Catholic cannot be a Nazi. <laughs> like a nazi club meeting right <laughs> so then uh, like as the nazis are growing in power he continues to speak out against them and at one point a nazi paper published uh, this article and they said whoever cast doubts on these facts counts as an enemy of national socialism and we know perfectly well how to deal with him so he gets up in the pulpit and he takes the newspaper he holds it up he reads that sentence and he says i say this i cast grave doubts upon them like who is this man and and i think especially to consider that he was a soldier you know that like mm -hmm. his buddies were the guys who had fought and died and then been devastated by these peace accords at the end of world war 1 his his comrades were the ones whose wounded pride was being preyed upon by the Nazis. You're like, it was his side that the Nazis were, were using to fuel this nationalistic rage. Mm -hmm. And he didn't care mm -hmm. because he wasn't about sides. Yes. He was about truth and he was about people. Yes. And I mean, that's really, I think that's really what takes the greatest courage is standing up against your own side. I mean, Right. Exactly. So eventually, um, I mean, even before the Nazis invaded Poland, he was arrested multiple times. Uh, he was put in a concentration camp for a couple of years. His health was really deteriorating and they were like, we don't want to make him a martyr. So they put him in basically solitary confinement in um, a monastery for six years. Mm. And he was liberated um, when the Allies liberated Munich. Wow. And he went back and he served for six months. And then um, he actually had a stroke while preaching wow. on All Saints Day. Wow. And died shortly after, just mm. a couple hours later. Mm. Uh, so I just, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a brilliant man. He wasn't a great writer. He wasn't a great preacher, apparently. So this is a Jesuit, right? The Jesuits are very educated. They tend to be very interested in um, like academic advancement, not necessarily as like a point of pride, but they're like, you know, part of the order is like doing this work, doing this education. He wrote two articles <laughs> and that's it. That's all mm -hmm. he has written. And it, they were like, like pastoral reflections in some Catholic magazine, mm. you know, like, I mean, we basically have, I think, like a thousand words from wow. this ever written down. He wasn't remarkable in any way, except that he loved people, whatever the cost. Yeah. And he had conviction. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. Exactly. So that's Blessed Rupert Mayer. And I just find, I find that so encouraging just to see his willingness his willingness to take a stand. Um, but I think that sometimes the way that God is asking us to be holy in politically challenging situations isn't going to be glamorous, right? And I mean, like, not that a concentration camp is glamorous, but standing up in a pulpit and shouting against Nazis, like, that's, that's hero stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, at a time where most people would have been either attracted to or made nervous by the rise of the Nazis, mm -hmm. few people were willing to wave their arms and stand up and say, this, I'm against this. So, yeah. Right. Exactly. But I think that we look back on that and we think like, yeah, yeah, I want to do big and wild and crazy things. You know, like everybody wants to be a Catherine of Siena. Catherine of Siena did not. <laughs> She didn't want to tell the Pope what to do. She didn't want to be a public figure. She didn't want 
to write these scathing letters. I mean, when you read her letters, she's obviously very sorry to have to correct the Holy Father, uh, which is a good a good sign that you're doing mm-hmm. the right thing. If you're like, I do not want to yell at you right now, <laughs> but I think I have to. Uh, but I am really intrigued by, I mean, honestly, every Korean saint um, that they have, because the whole history of the church in Korea is amazing. Uh, but one of the figures that I find most intriguing was actually a Chinese priest who was an undocumented immigrant in hmm. Korea. Uh, his name is Blessed James Zhu Wenmo. And Korea, actually, it's the only country ever to have evangelized itself. Mm. So every other nation on earth had missionaries go to it and preach the gospel. In Korea, a handful of teenagers found a Catholic catechism by Matteo Ricci and were like, yeah, no, this wow. is true. And they studied it and they like picked a day to be Sunday and they started celebrating Sunday and they were like living in basically this like small community of faith and then smuggled one of their number out to China. So Korea is also the only country to have been evangelized through contact with China. They smuggled someone out to China and he got smuggled back in and he came and started baptizing people and they went out and they like grabbed a map and divided up the country. And they had, I think a thousand Catholics baptized within six months what time period is this? Um, so this was 1785 um, that servant of God, Peter Yi Sung Hun, came back from China. So 1784, I think he left for China. 1785, he came back. But then they had no priest for the next 10 years. And it's all lay people. And it's great because they like read the Bible and they were like, okay, obviously confession's a thing. So they're hearing each other's confessions. And then one of them like read one of the books that had been smuggled back in by Peter Yi Sung Hun. And he was like, oh, I think only priests are supposed to do that. And so they like wrote a letter to Peking and they were like, can we hear confessions? And the bishop was like, no, you really cannot stop doing that thing. And God loved them in their humility. They did. I would have been like, oh, it's fine. It's been working out just great. But after 10 years of only lay people in the church in Korea, Blessed James Zhu Wenmo, a Chinese priest, was able to sneak into the country. Uh, and what, what I love so much about him is that he was, uh, he was illegal, right? Mm-hmm. He's an undocumented immigrant, not because he's Catholic. This isn't like persecution against Catholics. It's because he's Chinese. Mm-hmm. It's because he didn't get the right papers mm-hmm. for his country of origin to be allowed to enter the country. But he looked at these immigration laws and he was like, this does not trump God's law that says that these people need a priest. Um, and there's something that I think we ought to be uncomfortable about in looking at him, whatever your position is on immigration, mm-hmm. to look at him and to be like, this man knew what the law was and he broke mm-hmm. it because he believed that that was what God was calling him to do. And just sort of wrestling with like, which, which laws do I feel are sacrosanct? Right. And which laws do I feel ought sometimes to be disobeyed, you know? And when do I think it needs to be disobeyed in a large and public way as a statement? And when do I think it's okay to, like, cross the border in secret and just try and protect my family? Um, and so I just find him really interesting in, in the question of uh, the way that our political environment impacts our pursuit of holiness, that this is not a man who was fighting big fights, Mm -hmm. right? This was a man who was only ever sneaking around. Mm. And he's uh, basically protected throughout his ministry by blessed Kalemba Kang Wan Suk, who is one of my favorites, which I don't know, that probably puts her like top 50, (laughs) but still, like I, I adore this woman. So she was also Korean. She was born... I want to say 1761, because I think she was 40 when she died, and she died in 1801. Um, And she was born outside of wedlock to the concubine of a member of the royal family. And then she was married to a man whose wife had died. And so she's a stepmother, and uh, she discovers the gospel. And she evangelizes her parents and her mother-in-law and her stepson, Blessed Philip Hong Pilju, and cannot evangelize her husband. And eventually he left. He went to live with his concubine. He divorced her. His mother went with her. And so here's mm-hmm. Blessed Columba, who's like 
you know, what is my life now? My husband has left me. What options do I have as a Korean woman in the late 18th century? And suddenly it occurred to her that because her husband had left her, there was actually a loophole in Korean law that said that a woman who was living without her husband, who owned her own property, uh, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't investigate in her house. It was, it was improper for the police Mm. to search her home. Mm. And so she was like, Oh, hang on. (laughs) Now I have, now I have this power because of this unjust situation in my life because of this suffering and having lost my husband, who doesn't sound like he was a great guy, but divorce is a really complicated and painful thing, kind of regardless of what feeds into it, even if it is maybe the healthiest situation. Uh, Because of all of this struggle and suffering, now she has a home that can be a safe haven for the Catholics in Korea, including Father James Mm -hmm. Juremo. And so she becomes... Basically, I mean, the matriarch of the church in Korea, he makes her a catechist, which is sort of unheard of for women at the time. But she's not only like teaching Sunday school classes, she's also smuggling this priest from one place to the next, right? She's the one who's sort of organizing all of this subterfuge to make sure to keep him safe. She goes and starts evangelizing the royal family. Like we have pictures of her encountering the royal family she converted at least two members of the royal family she like gathers all of the women who've made vows of consecration to live in her home and she becomes sort of this linchpin of all that's going on in the catholic church in korea at the time and it's because she figured out a way to sort of manipulate the political wow. situation for the <laughs> advantage of all of these people so then eventually um, they managed this for six years, and then eventually um, she and her son and Blessed James Yu Wenmo are all arrested, and they're wow. all murdered. Um, but it was the only six years. I mean, in the first 50 years of Catholicism in Korea, there's one priest for six years wow. total. And it's Blessed James Yu Wenmo who managed it because he broke the law, and it because Columba Kong Wan Suk knew how to mm-hmm. manipulate the law. You know, and so I just find these things fascinating to look at your political circumstances and to say this is an invitation to holiness, either through these channels or because I have to go up against Yeah, these it's channels. interesting to think of how they interacted with the system they found theirself, themselves in. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. And some saints really do manage um do manage to work in the system. I mean, obviously we have saints who were kings and queens and princes and princesses. Uh, but one, uh, I don't, I don't know a lot of saints we have who were like career politicians. I think it's a little bit of a different thing when it's hereditary and you're mm-hmm. sort of stuck with it. Um, but we do have blessed Miguel Gomez Losa, who was um, a Mexican politician. Uh, he was, made the civil chief of his area, so essentially governor of his area. Um, But he spent much of his time before his his appointment, I think, to that position. He spent much of his time organizing protests against the government. Julie, he was arrested 58 times. Like, 58 times. So this is the early 20th century in Mexico. So it's during the Cristero War. So it's illegal Mm -hmm. to be a Catholic. It's illegal to receive sacraments. It's illegal to be a priest. Um, And he was also a lawyer. And so not only was he out there organizing the protests and getting arrested, he's serving as legal counsel to the student protesters. This is all sort of leading up to the Cristero Mm -hmm. War when like things were becoming complicated. He leads an economic boycott in protest of anti-church laws. So this was a man who, I don't I think he really stands as a witness for those of us right now who really do feel called to work through political mm-hmm. channels, to protest and to boycott and and to make statements beyond just, you know, the 280 character mm-hmm. tweet that you can throw out, but who feel like I need to take a risk and and make a statement that might get me fired, that might lose me friends, that isn't like harsh and cruel and judgmental, because I don't think that helps, right? I think so much of the issue that we are having in this country right now is this mm-hmm. internet rhetoric that then bleeds over into our actual mm-hmm. relationships. 
you know, it's not about like, oh, well, I'm going to say what's true and like everybody else be damned. It's, it's a question of like, can I say this in a way that people can hear, you know, that I'm, that I'm speaking, speaking a truth that isn't so cruel or harsh as to turn people off immediately so they can't even listen to what I'm saying. And Miguel Gomez Loso was one who was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to say what I know to be true. And I'm going to fight these battles through these channels that are currently open to me, even if it means that I'm going to be thrown in jail. Um, and he eventually has made civil chief of the area and he, he wasn't one of the ones who fought. So many of our Cristero martyrs were armed. Um, he, he was, one of the civil leaders, not one of the military leaders. And then he becomes governor of Jalisco. Um, and he served as governor for a year before he was discovered and then ultimately murdered. Um, but he's one for those of those of your listeners who are thinking like, no, I don't want to just like sneak around and like do the right thing quietly in my own home with my family. Like I need, I need to fight in a visible way. Miguel Gomez Losa. And honestly, Pier Giorgio Fassati too. Like he was arrested multiple times for his role in protests. He actually um, got into some trouble because he fought physically against political demonstration. Like they started attacking the crowd and his response to police brutality was to go after them with the... Um, the pole of the flag that he was holding, which I am not advocating. Oh my. Right. But, but it's important to recognize that like the correct response to violence isn't always just to stand Mm -hmm. there and take Mm -hmm. it. Right. Like sometimes the correct response is, I mean, I think often the correct response is to fight back. Generally, I would say not with violence, but like, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what Pierre Giorgio Fassati did and was arrested for it and then they found out who he was and his dad was ambassador to Germany and they were like oh my gosh like we're so sorry you can go and he was like no no you arrested me and I'm staying and they were like no please we don't want your dad to find out and he was like oh my dad's gonna find out everybody's gonna find out we are all gonna find out about this and they were like oh man Uh, and he like he didn't he didn't enjoy the violence he didn't even enjoy the protest he actually said uh one ought to go and one does. It is not they who suffer violence who f- should fear it, but those who practice it, right? So he multiple times was a recipient of brutality because of his political protesting. Um, and then at least once protected the people around him by, you know, swatting at people. With wow. And what time period is this in again? So Pier Giorgio Frassati um, was 1901 to 1925. Okay. Yeah. I mean, these examples aren't for the most part, not very far away. <laughs> They're not very far back. Mm-mm. Yeah. And we have like way back in the day ones too. I mean, you've got St. Ambrose um, forbidding the emperor or putting, uh, barring the emperor from the sacraments, I believe, and forbidding him to enter the cathedral because of, uh, I think, a um, a massacre that he had ordered. And then the emperor had to do penance. Like you've got, you've got some like, pretty baller saints throughout history who were just like, nope, like I'm going to do what needs to be done. I love blessed Catherine Jerich. Uh, she's a, um, a French woman from the French revolution. And she, she really speaks to my heart because she was sort of like a sassy, mischievous, loudmouth, troublemaking kind of a kid uh, who thought like, well, I really love Jesus, and so I can't be sassy, mischievous, loudmouthed, and troublemaking, right? As many of us think, I think particularly in 20th and 21st century American Christianity that's so influenced by, you know, the Duggars, um, <laughs> this idea that particularly female holiness has to be quiet. And so she became a Dominican tertiary. So she was still living at home with her family, but she had taken vows as a consecrated woman, as a Dominican. And she gave up this dance, which was like, you know, this French country folk dance. uh, And I'm sure was tremendously innocent, but she really felt that in order to give glory to God, she had to choose not to dance anymore. She said it was one of the hardest things she ever did was to give up this dance. Uh, And it's a remarkable statement when you discover that she spent much of her life 
secretly fighting against the French Revolution. So um, eventually the French Revolution breaks out. And here's this woman who's been, you know, spent all these years trying to be just like quiet and sweet and gentle. And the revolution breaks out and she's like, oh, like the world doesn't currently need pious church ladies. I mean, it needs the pious church ladies, but it also needs the loud mischievous troublemakers who can figure out a way to fight this, not just on their knees, but also on their feet. Mm -hmm. And so she, she goes out and she basically becomes like the head of an underground railroad of priests in France when it's illegal to be what they call a non-juring priest. So priests were required to take an oath of fidelity um, to the new French state and those who didn't, the penalty was death. Anybody who was practicing the faith in any noticeable way, the penalty was death. And she undertook to get all of these priests where they needed to be. And so she would like sneak them through town in the middle of the night. And like when babies were born, the soldiers were always watching the home because they knew that a priest would be coming to baptize the baby. And so she would smuggle the babies out to a priest. She'd like put the baby in a basket and like cover the baby with bread and just pray that the kid wouldn't cry as she's carrying this baby through the street to go get baptized. Um, And at first in this work that she's doing, she, she would tell lies. Um, And it's sort of a complicated, you know, that like the Nazis come to the door. Are you hiding Jews? Like morally, can you lie there? But at a certain point she was like, I can't, like, I cannot tell lies anymore. I can't do it. And so she would tell the truth, but she would just say it in a really sarcastic <laughs> tone of voice. <laughs> so they thought she was messing with them. So like one time she's like, she's got a chalice in her apron and like straw over top of it. And one of the soldiers stopped her and was like, what do you have in your apron? And she was like, I've got a chalice. You want to look at it? And he was like, no, why are you being mean? Like, and she did. Um, and like another time she was grabbed by the soldiers when she had like just left a priest behind and they were like, where are you coming from? And she was like, over there. And they were like, where over there? And she was like, over there. And they were like, but where? And she was like, over there. And they were like, but where were you? Like, what house were you in? And she was like, it's over there. And they were like, why are you on this road? And she's like, I'm coming from over there. They were like, just go away. Like, we can't, we can't handle you. One time she was arrested and anytime she was asked a question that would betray somebody, she would just start praying the rosary, like allowed in this trial. So she's like on trial and they're like, who did you see that night? And she's like, Oh, hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with me. Just like out loud. And eventually they were like, well, she's just crazy. Like we can't even with this woman. Another time she's like smuggling this priest out and they see uh, some soldiers. And so she's just like starts yelling at the priest. It's like, you're an awful father. Your children are at home and they don't even know it. Just like, like screaming at him for being a drunk. And the soldiers assumed that she was the priest's wife and that she was just like mad at him for being out at a bar. And they said, citizen, if I had a wife like that, I'd like, throw myself in the river. And the priest was like, citizen, so would I. Oh. So, I mean, she basically just uses, like, improv skills for the entirety of the French Revolution. One time, there was a priest inside a house, and a soldier was going in, and she, like, grabbed the soldier by the arm in the street and was just like, you're ugly, and your mother doesn't even like you, and just, like, acts (laughs) drunk in the street and, like, ridicules this soldier. But because she's a little old drunk woman who's, like, slurring her words and saying ridiculous things, the soldier thought it was really funny. And he, like, called all his friends over to, like, laugh at this drunk woman making fun of him, and the priest snuck out the back. Oh, my gosh. This would make a great movie. (laughs) Right? Yes. So, Blessed Catherine Gerige, she spends the whole war doing this um, in... In the time that she was doing it, um, only one priest who she was responsible for was ever arrested. And he's a servant of, he's a venerable, I don't remember his name, Francois something, I think. He was arrested and he was martyred, but she went with him because she was just fearless. And she ends up developing a reputation so that the soldiers who recognized her knew who she was. But when they would arrest her, the people would threaten to break down the jail because they loved her so much. Um, and she had two years actually where in this two year run, not one person that she was taking care of died without wow. the sacraments, which in a time when it was almost impossible to find a priest, 
just incredible. So eventually the revolution ends and she's kind of like, well, now who am I? Because I like figured out what God could use my personality for in these circumstances. But like now we're not in these circumstances. So she just starts like begging um, and uh, going to the homes of rich people. And most of the time she's like super sweet and is like, oh, please, could we have something? And they're like, oh, of course. And every once in a while she got to use that sass where someone would be like, no, you can't have anything. She'd be like, fine. Well, like you're going to wish you'd given it to me when you go to your judgment and Jesus asks you about the people who starved to death because you wouldn't give me any food today. And they're like, okay, never mind. Here's a loaf of bread. Um, and towards the end of her life, when, you know, this was all in the past, there was a bishop who came to town and she met the bishop and she said, Excellency, can I have your blessing? And he said, no. And she was like, oh boy, like, what's he mad at me about? Because, you know, I mean, you know how it is being a woman in the church in the 21st century. Like, look at that in the 18th century. It's certainly much more complicated. And so she's like, oh boy. And he says, no, first may I have yours. Mm. And a bishop kneels down before a lady. Especially at that time. Wow. To get her blessing. In the 18th century? Like, are you kidding me right now? Like, unreal. Unreal. So I think she's a really marvelous one when you feel like you just don't know how you fit in and, like, what your work could be. I think that often it's because we're thinking too much inside the box. And we're not realizing that perhaps the call that we're being given, the way that we're being called to fight injustice, to fight racism, to fight xenophobia, to fight abortion, you know, like all of these incredible injustices that we have in our world, like you can fight abortion without praying rosaries outside an abortion clinic, right? And you, you can fight racism without going to protests and you can fight for equitable healthcare access without being a doctor, you know, like there, there are roles for all of us in these different battles that we we feel that we're being called to. And I think often it only becomes clear the work that you are able to do that nobody else is able to do when, when all of a sudden you encounter something that, that you just never thought possible. Right. Like smuggling priests by screaming at uh, the, revolutionaries in the French Revolution. She also would sing their songs all the time as she like walked through the woods. She would sing their songs so that they would assume that she was on their team. Leave them leave her alone. Isn't it amazing to look back and like consider all the creativity that went into these activities, you know? Just think like mm. man, the pure creativity to to get out of difficult situations and come up with good answers and you know incredible just awkwardly <laughs> in the stand while you're being while you're on trial you know no big oh deal. my goodness um what hope do you find in these stories like what what hope can we find in these examples and and what hope do you see when you look at the world today but you also spend so much of your life thinking about these holy men and women Uh, What hope do you see for the future? I think, you know, broadly speaking, when you look at these saints, these are men and women who were only extraordinary because they had prepared for extraordinary circumstances by living ordinary lives well. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Blessed Rupert Mayer wasn't a 24-year-old seminarian thinking, oh, we may have a horrific scourge that I have mm-hmm. to preach against. He, he became holy by showing up at his seminary classes. He became holy by, by you know, paying the electric bill for the church that he was pastor of. He became holy by encountering people on the street and talking to them. Like These little things, this living a life of prayer prepares you for the great things. And some people aren't ever called to do great things, right? Many of us are called to live very ordinary lives, but it's in that consent to ordinary holiness that the Lord is able to move and to do really remarkable things. And so I think that for me, the hope lies in the number of people who who are seeking to be holy in the ordinary 
while being open to the idea that they may have to do something extraordinary because there is a danger I think on the flip side of being like yeah you know like I'm I'm raising my kids and I'm going to my job and I'm paying my taxes and I'm good when we live in a world of such incredible injustice and inequality Um, and those are really really important things but they have to be things that are undertaken with an openness to being a Catherine Jurich, to being a Columba Kangwan Sook, to being an Oscar Romero, right? Oscar Romero didn't want to make waves. He didn't want to make trouble. He just wanted to keep his head down and read his books and preach his happy academic homilies. And then one of his dearest friends, Venerable Rutilio Grande, who was like all the way the other end of the political spectrum, right? These guys, I find such hope in them, um, in their friendship, because Rutilio is like way to the left and Oscar is way to the right. But they were able to be friends, even though neither of them was in life able to convince the other one. But then Rutilio was killed in El Salvador for his work with the poor, and Oscar Romero looked at that. And even though he had been a cowardly man, even though he had been a man who had really abdicated his responsibility to the oppressed and the impoverished in his country as their archbishop, he looked at the body of his friend and he said, you know, if this is what they did to him, they're, they're never going to quit. I don't have an option of not fighting this battle. And he was transformed because he had been seeking holiness, even in sort of that cowardice, right? He was still seeking the Lord and it took, it took something huge for him to be able to step out. But there was always that preparation there, right? In that daily prayer in in his time spent in scripture, in his pursuing of Jesus in those ordinary things, the Lord was laying the groundwork for him then to become an extraordinary man who fought for justice in extraordinary ways and was killed for it while celebrating mm. Mass. Mm-mm-mm. Wow. I was also thinking when you were talking about people living their their lives simply, I was thinking about the couple, and I can't, can't remember their names, but you probably will. The couple that lived in Germany during the Second World War, um, there was a film made recently about them. Yes. I can't remember their names. Um, so the, the movie was A Hidden Life. It's Franz Jägerstetter. Okay. Um, the, the Terrence Malick film. Yes. Um, I don't, so her cause is not open, so I don't know her name because I like that. <laughs> but hang on. I um. I can pull it up. Francisca. There you go. Franz yeah. and Francisca. That makes it easier. <laughs> yeah. And his, his life was just a very ordinary life of a farmer. Um, and he had served in the military and been able to leave because of his duties on the farm. But then he, he was asked, he was required to go back. And he was like, I, knowing what I know, I can't, I can't fight. And so he became a conscientious objector and he was absolutely loathed by the rest of his country. Um, And I mean, all of the people in his small town and he was constantly being, you know, dragged into alleys and beaten up. And he knew, I mean, he knew he was going to die. He knew he was going to die. There's no way in Nazi Germany that you become a conscientious objector because of the cause of the war and -hmm. survive that. Um, and it's really, if, if people listening haven't seen the movie, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. I would really encourage you to watch it, um, but to commit to yourself beforehand not to multitask because it's yeah. very slow. Yeah. You know, I'll have to watch it. I, I, I haven't seen it yet. I am someone who uh, <laughs> um, has a hard time with things that are really intense, and I it was that was one of those movies where I thought, well, I don't know how I'm going to handle that. <laughs> Most of it is intense in like a farming way. <laughs> like it's it's like very intense shots of them like using a sickle in the fields. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's a very mm-hmm. artsy film. Um, it towards the end, obviously, you get into some mm-hmm. of the difficulties, but I think also if you go in knowing this mm-hmm. man is a martyr, it feels mm-hmm. different. Right, like watching martyrdom feels very different from just watching death because there is so much mm-hmm. redemption, right? Even in his anguish, because he really like he's wrestling with his conscience for 
the entirety of the film, you know, knowing that his wife and children are going to suffer because of this, um, but knowing that he can't do anything else. And yeah, there's something really beautiful in just their very ordinary life that was preparing him for this. I think also of um, Servants of God, Cyprian and Daphros Rugamba, who are, again, some of my favorites. Um, They were Rwandans in the 20th century, and they have just this like dramatic and tumultuous life. Cyprian was an absolute cad, just a total lecher. Um, they had 10 children together. Cyprian had another while they were married. He was the kind of atheist who, when his wife had just had a baby, he walked into the hospital room, took the crucifix off the wall and smashed it on the ground. Like that kind of atheist. Meanwhile, she is like a rosary praying daily mass type. And he's like sleeping around and breaking crucifixes. Uh, But and they're also beautiful um, because they lost their first child to miscarriage. And while we likely have many, many saints who lost children to miscarriage, there are very few where that shows up mm. in the record. Um, as yet, we will get more and more because, you know, like we just are more aware of what's going on with our bodies and people are no more of the losses they've had um, and are more likely to talk about it. But they lost their first child to miscarriage. And so if that's something that people have experienced, um, Daphros in particular is a great friend for that. Cyprian at that point in his life, I think was not um, really letting himself feel things the way that he needed to be feeling them. Um, but eventually he has, he gets really sick um, and has this miraculous healing and a miraculous conversion. And he's this like, incredible choreographer and musician. He's sort of leading the Rwandan cultural Renaissance in the, in this post-colonial era. Um, and he, be- he had already been a leader culturally and now he becomes a leader in the church and it's so beautiful because you see these pictures of them together and Daphros is always gazing at him like the sun rises and sets on this man and I mean he was awful to her he was awful to her and to see the level of forgiveness in her eyes you know after they've had this reconciliation after he's begged her forgiveness and has has worked to become a man who's worthy of her that she doesn't look at him and see all that he had done she looks at him and sees who he is in Christ. Um, and together, they're sort of leading this renewal in the church. In Rwanda, they bring the Emmanuel community, um, their founders of the Emmanuel community down there. But they're also, Cyprian in particular, was outspoken against uh, a lot of the ethnic hatred that was going on in Rwanda at the time, um, and ultimately signed his death warrant by speaking out against the presence of ethnic identity on mm-hmm. identity cards because he thought it was mm-hmm. going to be dangerous. And because he had spoken out against that, he he's at the top of the kill list when the mm. genocide began. So the president's plane was shot down um, and the Rugambas decided to spend the night in prayer. They had a tabernacle in their house. And so they were up praying before the tabernacle, the two of them and six of their children. Um, the other, I think, I think seven of the children were home. Three were away. Um, And uh, armed men broke in. First, they shot the tabernacle. And then they shot the whole family. One of the children survived, um, but all the others Mm -hmm. were killed. And I think, you know, it's a a tragic end to their story, but it's such a beautiful gift to the nation of Rwanda that these, this couple that's on their way to being the first canonized Rwandan saints are a couple that's marked by seeking and granting forgiveness. Right. That their whole marriage is about mercy, right? Cyprian's willingness to seek mercy and Daphros' willingness to grant it. And in a country that so badly needs that, to have these saints who are models of mercy, who are models of authentic Rwandan culture, who are models of um, fighting against ethnic hatred, uh, just such a gift. And Cyprian was like, actually very involved politically, um, sort of less so towards the end of his life because he had made his position known and he had become persona non grata in, um, in politics at the time. But he very much believed that part of his role, even before he knew Jesus, even before it was a calling that he felt, part of his role was 
was to work to strengthen and salvage Rwandan culture that had been so devastated by the colonial experience. Um, so yeah, those two also, but it, their heroic sanctity comes through this ordinary experience of, you know, seeking forgiveness in marriage and offering forgiveness in marriage, which for every married person I've ever met is a pretty integral part of the experience of being married. Wow. Yeah, I'm glad you brought them up. I was going to ask about them because I remember when you posted about them online and just being so intrigued by their story on different levels, you know. Well, Meg, thank you so much for this. I appreciate it. I, um, I, I tend to, you know, I tend to get so sunk in like everything that's happening right now. It's hard to see your way out of it. And I think it's so helpful to take a step back and get some perspective and say, these are the kinds of struggles that have always been with us. And, and, and much worse. I mean, I, I'm not going to compare what we're currently living through with the, you know, Rwandan genocide, but we obviously do have some, some concerning situations. I just think I'm so struck right now with how, how both sides in our current political divide seem to see the current election as like such an existential threat. (laughs) I just, I feel like I hear it from Mm -hmm. friends on the right and on the left. And it's so interesting that people are just seeing their opposite as the threat to their own existence. And um, it does give me some concern for the future, but the stories like you were telling us today give me a lot of hope and resolve and um, help me to, to look past it and to sort of see the broader story that we're all part of. And the invitation to heroism that comes in circumstances like these, because like, no, it's not the Rwandan genocide, but like, it is, it's not a good time, right? Like, and, and I think that many of us have privilege that shields us from a lot of that, but you know, like for, for the women who had hysterectomies Mm. that they did not request in these internment camps, Mm -hmm. uh, because they came over seeking asylum and the rules were changed on them. Like, you know, like, yeah, I mean, like it might it might feel quite a lot like what blessed Rupert Mayer was fighting against, you know, and to recognize that just because right now for me this isn't horrific doesn't mean that there aren't horrific things that are going on, if not in the country, then certainly in the world. Um, and I I don't know, like I don't know that there's anybody who doesn't look at something in our country and say that's horrific, whether it's abortion or um, the assault on the climate or um, what's being done to immigrants or people's lack of availability of health care or, you know, like whatever, whatever it is that you're looking at in our country, you know, like if you're honest with yourself, there are things in this country that should make you like horrified. The question is, can you in that horror see that God is still good? And that because he loves you so much, he has allowed you to live in a time when you are now able to live heroically, Mm. you know, and, and sometimes that is through the simple, ordinary thing. And sometimes that simple, ordinary thing is preparing us to do something wild and terrifying and, you know, that may end in martyrdom, God willing, not in our country in this era, Um, but but perhaps, you know, like, and the willingness has to be there. Like, if we're going to fight injustice, there has to be a willingness to sacrifice, which doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to die for it, right? But I think a lot of us want to fight injustice from the comfort mm-hmm. of our keyboards. And when we, when we lose a friend, that's too much, you know? But, like, I see a lot of people talking about anti-racism, and saying, like, you aren't anti-racist until you have suffered because of your work in fighting racism. Mm-hmm. Um, until you reach that point, like, you're, you're, just, you're just getting the accolades without, without really fighting. Um, and I think it's true of any work against injustice. You know, like, not to mm-hmm. make people feel guilty that, like, you're not trying hard enough, but... But there is something beautiful in saying, like, this is the fight that I have picked. You can't fight every battle. 
but this is the fight that I have picked, right? Like Rupert Mayer, he was fighting the Nazis and Cyprian and Daffros, they were fighting ethnic tension and Columba Kangwon Suk, she was fighting to make sure that priests could get to their people. Um, this is the fight that I have picked and I am willing to be uncomfortable. Right. Because of it. And I think when we talk in terms of sacrifice, especially when we're talking about, you know, like the Rwandan genocide and the French revolution and these like really violent times in history, it can be easy for us to say, oh, that's a kind of sacrifice I will never be called to. That's come, that's a different point in history, but there's much more to sacrifice than giving up your life. There's giving up of your status, of your pride, Mm -hmm. of friendship, perhaps, of, um, Mm your reputation, you know, there's, there are all, all sorts of things that can be sacrificed that are so mundane that we might not even think of them as such, but they, they might be something that we're called to. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think this has been a, a helpful conversation. I'm curious to know what people will think of it. It's a little different than other topics that I've been uh, having here on the podcast. Yeah, I suppose we should say for um, our Protestant brothers and sisters, for whom the saints are sort of foreign, um, largely the idea of the saints is these are people who show us what the imitation of Christ can look like in particular circumstances, right? So St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so, you know, Jesus never suffered a miscarriage, but Daphros Rugamba did. And so when you're dealing with that and you're trying to figure out what does it look like to be an imitator of Christ in this moment, right? What does it look like in a fascist state to imitate Christ? What does it look like as a doctor to imitate Christ? The saints give us um, many different images of how we can model our lives on the life of the Savior uh, in particular circumstances that we don't see in the Gospels. And for those of you who aren't Christian at all, who are listening in. Um, I think it's it's pretty clear that uh, we're talking about the lives of the saints as heroic images of people who've gone before who can inspire us um, to live lives that are centered on the love of God and the love of others. So, no, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I have a hard time thinking that um, even people who are um, are not Christian wouldn't still find these lives to be inspiring and um worthy of attention, you know, especially when we're in a time where we're looking for people who are going to stand up and do the right thing. I think, I think there's inspiration to be found in these stories for people beyond Catholics. So, but thank you for explaining that. (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure. All right. Well, Meg, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. And I am so grateful that you came onto this podcast, even though you hate politics. (laughs) (laughs) I am really glad to have had the opportunity if for no other reason than that I got to know Blessed Rupert Mayer better and I think (laughs) good well I am going to post uh, links to all of your social media on here on the show notes and I want everyone to go follow Meg who isn't already because there's so much to learn and um, I think I think in particular right now it's been fascinating to to watch you talk about saints from all over the world I mean even just in this conversation we covered Asia Africa Europe Central America so it's just it's fascinating to to sort of take a little trip around the world hearing these stories too exactly it's a beautiful thing the church is universal it is not a western reality it is not a European imposition. It is an Asian religion that that was already being followed in Africa and South Asia and the Middle East long before my Irish ancestors were doing anything other than, you know, worshiping in the forests. So. All right. Well, thank you, Meg. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Have a great night. You too. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Meg Hunter-Kilmer. If you're not already following Meg on social media, I hope you'll do so. I have learned so much from her over the past few years. About the saints, but also about the calls to holiness and justice we each receive in our own personal, ordinary lives. You can find Meg on Instagram and Facebook at mhunterkilmer and on Twitter at meghunterkilmer. 
can find links to those accounts, as well as to Meg's blog, and to the website for her upcoming book called Saints Around the World in the show notes. On next week's episode, I'll be talking with singer-songwriter Kevin Heider. Kevin, who writes hymns, drinking songs, and everything in between, has recently released an EP called Make an Honest Stand. A collection of six beautiful songs, Make an Honest Stand explores ideas related to politics, society, history, patriotism, and faith. The songs are protest songs of a sort. They are protests, perhaps, against antipathy. They are not so much protests against an external force, but rather against the sin and injustice found within us, within our society. They are an invitation to reckoning. Thank you for listening to this episode of More Than Politics. I hope you'll subscribe to it, and that if you like it, you'll leave a rating or review so others can find it. I'd appreciate any shares, too. Your help is the best way to let others know about the podcast. My name is Julie Varner-Walsh. I'm your host. You can learn more about me by checking out my blog at thesewellsblog.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at Julie V. Walsh and Facebook at More Than Politics Podcast. This podcast's theme music is by purple-planet.com.